This program is brought to you by Bible Way Media, a work of the Ulaga Church of Christ. Welcome to the program today. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for tuning in to Opening the Scriptures. We're going to continue in our studies in the book of Job today, and we're going to start in Job chapter 27. Job just finished his, his speech there in chapter 26. In chapter 27, it appears that he may have waited there to see if any of his friends would respond. With none of them responding, then Job continues his discourse. Adam Clark, concerning this chapter, said this, and I quote, After having delivered the preceding discourse, Job appears to have paused to see if any of his friends chose to make any reply. But finding them all silent, he resumed his discourse, which is here uh, called Mashalo, or his parable, his authoritative, weighty discourse, unquote. Well, first of all, Job says he will speak the truth and maintain his innocence. And that's chapter 27, verses 1 through 6. Well, in verses 1 and 2, we see that Job still believes that God is the cause of his problems. Job 27, 1 and 2. Moreover, Job continued his parable and said, As God liveth, who hath taken away my judgment, and the Almighty who hath vexed my soul. Uh, Job here makes a solemn oath because he says, As God liveth. Job believes God has rejected his cause and, retreat, and treated him as if he was guilty. Job also believes that God has greatly afflicted him and made his soul bitter. Job swears by God in verses 3 and 4 that as long as he lives, he will speak the truth. Job 27, 3 and 4. All the while my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. My lips shall not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Job refers to the fact that God created man and put breath, the breath of life into him, going back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So Job's solemn oath was to put to rest the suspicions of his friends and that he would not advocate the wicked or error. Now in Job 27.5, Job tells his friends that he would not admit that what they said about him was right. Job 27.5. God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. Wayne Jackson on page 62 of his work, The Book of Job, made this quotation or made this comment, and I quote, Job's friends had tried to persuade him to confess to sins of which he was not guilty, but this he would not do, for such would be hypocrisy and wickedness, and God will deal with the wicked, unquote. So Job is maintaining his integrity 
and he is not going to validate his friend's accusations. In chapter 27 here, verse 6, Job gives a strong affirmation of his innocence. Job 27, 6. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. So Job is saying that he has done his best to live a righteous life and that his afflictions are not the result of his sins. Albert Barnes said this, and I quote, Property may leave a, may leave a man, friends may forsake him, children may die, disease may attack him, slander may assail him, and death may approach him. But still, he may have in his bosom one unfailing source of consolation. He may have the consciousness that his aim has been right and pure, unquote. The biblical illustrator there in Esword states this, and I quote, Whatever happens to me, I will not play the false. I will not be insincere. No one can rob me of my integrity, unquote. Well, in Job chapter 27, verses 7 down through the end of the chapter there, verse 23, Job affirms that God will deal with the wicked. First of all, in verse 7 here of chapter 27, Job demands that those who have spoken against him should suffer the fate of the wicked. Job 27, 7. Let mine enemy be as the wicked, and he that riseth up against me as the unrighteous. The word enemy there, translated from the Hebrew word oyeb, means, according to Strong's definitions, hating or an adversary. So an adversary there. Uh, in chapter 27, verse 8, Job affirms that the hypocrite has no hope of good when they die. Job 27, 8. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained, when God taketh away his soul? Well, both Bildad and Zophar referred to this. First of all, look at Job chapter 8, verse 13. Job chapter 8, verse 13, Bildad said, So are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. Yes. And then in Job chapter 20, verse 5. Job chapter 20 Verse 5, Zophar said that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment. And Job is saying here, yes, that's true. There in chapter 27, verse 8, the hope of the hypocrite. You know, even though he's gained all this stuff, when God taketh away his soul, what's his hope? There's none. So Albert Barnes here said, and I quote, Job now says that he fully accords with that belief. He was not disposed to defend hypocrisy. He had no sympathy for it. He knew as they did that all the joy of a hypocrite would be temporary and that when death came, it must vanish, unquote. So Job is saying he's not a hypocrite because he has hope for good when he dies. 
And then Job says that God will not hear the cry of an evil man when trouble comes. Chapter 27, verse 9. He says, will God hear his cry when trouble cometh upon him? You know, that's a question that to ask is to answer, no. The evil man has no refuge in time of trouble like the godly person does. Keep your marker here in Job 27. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. It says there, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You know, the refuge comes from a, to, to a godly person, not an ungodly person. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So right there, God is not going to hear the cry of an evil man when trouble comes, but we can cast all of the righteous, can cast all their cares upon God, pray to God, Receive that peace that comes from God because God cares for us. And then back in Job chapter 27, verse 10, Job says, The wicked person has no delight in God. Chapter 27, verse 10. He says, Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? Again, to ask is to answer. The answer is no. The hypocrite is not going to do that. Albert Barnes said, and I quote, Job had been charged with defending the character of the wicked and with maintaining that they were the objects of divine favor. He now says that he maintained no such opinion. He was aware that the only real and solid happiness was to be found in God. And he knew that a hypocrite would not find the light there, unquote. Well, Job had been accused of defending the character of the wicked. Well, Eliphaz did that back in Job chapter 22, verse 18. Job 22:18. Eliphaz says here, Yet he filled our houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. So right there, he's just saying, Job, I will not accept the counsel of the wicked like you're trying to set forth. Well, Job is here in verse 10 of chapter 27. He's denying that accusation. Well, Job tells his friends that he will give them some instructions in Job 27, 11. He says, I will teach you by the hand of God. That which is with the Almighty will I not conceal. Adam Clark here says, and I quote, Relying on divine assistance and not speaking out of my own head or quoting what others have said, I will teach you what the mind of the Almighty is, and I will conceal nothing, unquote. 
Well, Job tells his friends that they have seen and experienced what Job was saying. So why do they utter such nonsense as they have been saying? Chapter 27, verse 12. <clears throat> Behold, all you yourselves have seen it. Why then are you thus altogether vain? Why are you altogether useless? Well, Leon Barnes in the 16th Spiritual Sword Lectureship book on page 285 made this statement, and I quote, you, you cannot just use the outward evidence as the measure of a person's righteousness. God looks at the heart. He knows what is going on in a person's life. It may be that even though they heap up riches, have many children, and everything seems to be growing great for them, God knows what they're doing. And he not only punishes their wickedness in the next life, he often haunts them in the mind and heart in the here and now, unquote. So Job now begins to describe what will happen to the wicked man. There in verse 13 of Job 27. He says, this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors which they shall receive of the Almighty. So he's saying the wicked, they're ultimately going to suffer. Sin has its consequences. And then in verse 14, Job says the families of the wicked will suffer the consequences of their sin. Verse 14, if his children be multiplied, it is for the sword, and his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. You know, sometimes children are going to be slain because of the sins of the parents. Could be slain in war, could be slain because of the evil things they're doing, following their parents' examples. Sometimes he says they will be wanting bread. They will be reduced to poverty because of what their ancestors, their fathers, their wicked ancestors have done. Well, and then in verse 15, Job says that death will have its victory over the wicked. Job 27:15. Those that remain of him shall be buried in death and his widows shall not weep. Adam Clark said concerning this verse and I quote, "These are no common dead. All the sting, all the wound and all the poison of sin remains." And so evident are God's judgments in his and their removal that even widows shall not weep for them. The public shall not bewail them. For when the wicked perish, there is shouting, unquote. Again, keep your marker here and go to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10. Proverbs chapter 11, <clears throat> verse 10. It says, by the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. So blessings, the upright city is exalted, but it's overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. And then look at 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 56. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 56. 
He says there, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. So right there, as Clark said, all the sting, all the wound, all the poison of sin remains in that wicked person's death. And then in Job chapter 27, verses 16 and 17, Job says, though the wicked may use great skill in their works, but those works are going to crumble and rot. Verse 18, he says, he buildeth his house as a moth and as a booth that the keeper maketh. Well, again, quoting Adam Clark here, he says, quote, with great skill, great pains, and great industry, but the structure, however skillful, shall be dissolved, and the materials, however costly, shall be brought to corruption. To its owner, it shall be only a temporary habitation, like that which the moth makes in its larva, or caterpillar state, during its change from a Excuse me, got the hiccups here. From a chrysalis to a winged insect, unquote. And then he mentions the booth there that the keeper maketh. The booth there refers to a shed of the keeper of a vineyard that he uses to protect himself from the sun while the grapes are ripening. It's made of the lightest materials and is soon destroyed after the harvest because it's neglected. It's not needed anymore. Well, verse 19, there are two views that could be correct of it. And let's read chapter 27, verse 19. <laughs> it says, The rich man shall lie down, but he shall not be gathered. He openeth his eyes, and he is not. All right. The first view of this passage is the wicked man dies, and he cannot take his wealth with him. In other words, he lies down, he lies down in death. He shall not be gathered. In other words, he cannot gather up his riches or he shall not be gathered for an honorable burial as those that are slain in battle. Now, I want to look at Genesis chapter 25, verse 8, concerning that phrase, she shall not be gathered. Genesis chapter 25, verse Verse 8, it says there, Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man, and full of years, and was gathered to his people. So there is the opposite, possibly, of what we're reading here in Job 27, 19. Now, in Job 27, 19, he says, He openeth his eyes. That would be his current state after death. Uh, Luke chapter 16, verses 22 and 23, where it says, It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then Job 27, 19, it says, he is not, which means he is lost. So that's the first view of Job 27, 19. The second view is this. 
that the wealth of the wicked will at times be removed by the providence of God. Now, the explanation here goes, he lies down or he goes to bed at night. He shall not or shall not be gathered or he shall not have rest for the fear of losing his riches. He openeth his eyes when he wakes from sleep and he is not. By the providence of God, he is stripped from all his wealth. So those are the two views, and either one or even both of them could be correct concerning here Job 27.19. Well, in Job 27.20, Job says the terrors of death and judgment leap upon the hypocrite or the wicked man, Job 27.20. Terrors take hold on him as waters. A tempest stealeth him away in the night. In other words, these terrors seize him like a flood of water. The tempest of divine wrath steals him out of this world through death. Well, Job says in Job 27:21, the wicked are swept away as through the violence of a storm, or just like that. Job 27, 21. The east wind carrieth him away, and he departeth, and as a storm hurleth him out of his place. So in other words, the wicked is going to get what's coming to them whenever they are removed from the earth. Now, the storm of death will not spare the wicked. Chapter 27, verse 22. It says, Therefore God shall cast upon him and not spare. He would fain flee out of his hand. Now you'll notice there in the King James Version, the word God is in italics, which means it was added there by the translators. I want to look at two other versions of the Bible here, the first one being the literal translation and the second one being Young's literal translation. The literal translation says, for it will hurl at him and will not spare from its hand fleeing, he will flee. It there being the fury of death. Young's literal says, and it casteth at him and doth not spare. From its hand he diligently fleeth. So again, it looks like he's referring to death, the fury of death the wicked cannot escape. And then verse 23, the wicked man is driven from the stage of life. Verse 23, men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. Notice again. The word men here is an italics, meaning it was put there by the translators. It's not in the original. Well, the literal translation says, he shall clap his hands at them and shall hiss him from his place. Young's literal translation says, it clappeth at him its hands and it hisseth at him from his place. So the literal translation capitalizes he and his referring to God. 
The literal translation again says, or Young's literal says, it. Well, Adam Clark says, and I quote, here the storm is personified and the wicked actor is hissed and driven by it from off the stage. It seems it was an ancient method to clap the hands against and hiss a man from any public office who had acted improperly in it, unquote. And Dave Miller in class notes that I took stated this, and I quote, not applause, a negative clapping, shooing away, unquote. Like you would shoo something away out in your yard or whatever. Well, Wayne Jackson sums up chapter 27 in this way on page 62 of his book. Though one may be confident that the wicked will be punished eventually, the how and when of such matters are within the providence of the Lord's wisdom. Man, therefore, as a finite creature, can never hope to analyze the seemingly irregularities in and exceptions to the consi uh, consistent administration of divine justice in the world, unquote. Now, Job continues his speech here in chapter 28. So in Job's previous arguments, he declared he is living righteously. He doesn't understand why God's treating him the way that he is. And in Job chapter 28, Job brings forth the fact that true wisdom can only be found with God, and he gives several illustrations of this fact. Miles Cotham there in the 16th Spiritual Sword Lectureship book on page 292 states this. Chapter 28, and I quote, Chapter 28 paints a beautiful picture of man's vain attempt to discover truth and understanding outside the realm of God's revelation, unquote. And this may be Job's way of showing his friends that the reason of why he is suffering so greatly has not yet been discovered. So let's go to chapter 28. In verses 1 through 11, Job is going to discuss the fact that anything worth looking for takes time and effort and a great deal of searching. In verse 1, Job speaks of the mining of silver and the refining of gold. Chapter 28, verse 1. Surely there is a vein for the silver and a place for the gold where they find it or refine it. Well, silver must be found in veins beneath the earth and a diligent search must be made for these veins, but silver can be found. Gold that is mined is refined to purify it from its impurities. And Job says in Job 28.2, man is able to refine the iron ore and knows how to make brass. Says iron is taken out of the earth and brass is molten out of the stone. So he's saying men know how to separate iron from its ore. Uh, Adam Clark said this, and I quote, if we retain the common translation, perhaps the process of making brass may be to that which Job refers. For this metal is formed from copper melted with the stone calamine, and thus the stone is poured out to make brass. 
and brass is the combination of copper and zinc, and calamine is the zinc ore. Well, Wayne Jackson on page 62 made this comment, and I quote, Man with his amazing engineering techniques can to deep into the bowels of the earth in mining silver, gold, iron, and copper, unquote. So by means of his mining skill, Job says, man can bring light into the darkness inside the mines of the earth, Job 28.3. He says, he setteth an end to the darkness and searcheth out all perfection, the stones of darkness and the shadow of death. Will probably refers to the custom of carrying torches into the mine to give light. Man makes a complete and thorough search in the mine for precious metal and gets all he can get out of the mine, and yet the mines are, were, and are always dangerous, and the shadow of death lingers there. Now in verse 4, Job says, when underground streams are dug through in the mine, the mine is then unworkable and forgotten. Chapter 28, verse 4. The flood breaketh out from the inhabitant, even the waters forgotten of the foot, they are dried up, they are gone away from men. <clears throat> Adam Clark here states concerning this verse, and I quote, it may be intended to point out the waters that spring up when the miners have sunk down to a considerable depth so that the mine is drowned and they are obliged to give it up. Previously to the invention of the steam engine, this was generally the case. Hence, many ancient mines may be reopened and worked to great advantage because we have the means now to take off the water which the ancient workers had not. Then, or when, Therefore, floods break out in those shafts. They are abandoned, unquote. Now, I want to look at a few words here. It says there in the last part of verse 4, they are dried up. <clears throat> that means, according to Brown Driver Briggs, the Hebrew word dalal, means to hang, languish, hang down, or be low. Be low. And then it says, they are gone away. That is the Hebrew word nuah, which means to waver in a great variety of applications. Now, this is actually referring to the descent of miners into a shaft using a rope ladder, something that hangs down and is wavering, a rope ladder they would climb down. And then Job in chapter 28, verse 5, says the earth produces food on top and coal underneath, Job 28, 5. As for the earth, out of it cometh bread, and under it is turned up as it were fire. Mankind knows the art of agriculture, how to bring forth food. And then John Gill states, and I quote, coal which is fuel for fire for as in the earth are mines of gold and silver iron and brass out of which they are dug or the ore of them so there is coal under the earth which when turned up or dug is taken for firing unquote 
And then in Job 28, 6, Job says that among the stones of the earth are the sapphire and also gold dust. Verse 6, the stones of it are the place of sapphire and it hath the dust of gold. <clears throat> so we find sapphire and gold dust in the earth. He also says in verses 7 and 8, that the fowl of the earth have not seen the paths of the mines. Verses 7 and 8. There is a path which no fowl knoweth, and which the vulture's eye hath not seen. <clears throat> the lion's whelps have not trodden it, nor the fierce lion passed by it. Well, Wayne Jackson on page 62 of his book says this, and I quote, the minor tunnels passageways in the earth that have neither been seen or traveled by any other creatures, unquote. Albert Barnes says, and I quote him, <clears throat> the object of Job is to show the wisdom and the intrepidity or the adventurousness of man in penetrating these dark regions and searching for sapphires and gold. The most far-sighted birds could not find their way to them, the most intrepid and fearless of beasts of prey dared not adventure to those dangerous regions, unquote. Then in verse 9, Job says that the miner digs under and through mountains in search of precious gems and metals, Job 28, 9. He putteth forth his hand upon the rock, he overturneth the mountains by the roots. In other words, he's digging through the mountains to find these treasures, <clears throat> And then he also says, the miner opens a course for waters to drain from his mines if he can. There in chapter 28, verse 10. He cutteth out rivers among the rocks and his eye seeth every precious thing. Now, Albert Barnes says concerning this verse, and I quote, every valuable mineral or precious stone that lies embedded in the rocks it is evident from this that mining operations were carried to a considerable extent at the time of Job. The art of thus penetrating the earth and laying open its secrets indicated advanced stage of society, a stage much removed from barbarism, unquote. You know, that you just looking here at Job and you think about the way that evolutionists try to say that you know, we used to be pretty dumb animals and things such as that. But right here, we see the advanced intelligence of our ancestors. They weren't just old grunting cavemen like evolution tries to teach us. Our ancestors all the way back to Adam were extremely intelligent. Look at the things that they built, the things that they did. They weren't dumb. They were extremely intelligent, and they didn't need computers and calculators to help them. In Job 28:11, <clears throat> Job says the miner tries to restrain the water from flooding the mine so he can uncover the concealed treasures he desires to find. Verse 11, he bindeth the floods from overflowing, and the thing that is hid bringeth he forth to light. Again, quoting Albert Barnes. His object was to show that true wisdom was not to be found by human science or by mere investigation. He selects a case, therefore, where man 
had shown the most skill and wisdom and where he had penetrated farthest into the darkness. He penetrated the earth, drove his shaft through the rocks, closed up gushing fountains, and laid bare treasures that had been buried for generations in the regions of the night. Yet all this did not enable him to fully explain the operations of the divine government." Unquote. Well, now Job is going to discuss the fact that true wisdom and knowledge can only be found with God. And that takes us down from chapter 28, verses 11, down through 24. In verse 12, Job declares that true wisdom cannot be mined from the earth or by worldly intelligence. Verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Albert Barnes says the object of Job is to show that this is not to be found in the most profound science by penetrating to the farthest extent of which man was capable in the earth, nor by any human investigations whatever. None of these things revealed the great plans of the Almighty in reference to his moral government, and particularly to the points which engrossed the attention of Job and his friends." Unquote. In other words, he's saying you can't dig a shaft in the earth and find true wisdom. Well, in Job 28:13, Job says, "Man digs for treasure in the earth, but wisdom is far more valuable than any valuable than any treasure he will ever find." Job 28:13. Man knoweth not the price thereof. Neither is it found in the land of the living. Wisdom is a peculiar possession of God. I want to leave your marker here in Job 28. Let's go to the book of Proverbs first. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. There it says, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, that is being wisdom, and she shall promote thee and shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine hand an ornament of grace, a crown of glory, and she shall deliver thee. Now look at Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord, or reverence of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One, or holy, is understanding. Now look at Proverbs 16, 16. Proverbs 16, 16. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver. And then go to James chapter 1, verse 5. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, or doesn't scold, as it shall, and it shall be given him. 
So in all those places, we see that wisdom is the peculiar possession of God, and that's where wisdom, true wisdom, comes from. In verse 20, or chapter 28 of Job, verse 14, wisdom cannot be found in the deepest recesses that man can penetrate. Job 28, 14. The depth saith, it is not in me. And the sea saith, it is not with me. So wisdom cannot be found in the earth or the oceans. And then verse 15, wisdom cannot be purchased with the precious ores of the earth. Verse 15, it cannot be gotten for gold, neither shall silver be weighed for the price thereof. Adam Clark said this, and I quote, Solomon made gold and silver as plentiful as the stones in Jerusalem and had all the delights of the sons of men, yet he was not happy. Yea, he had wisdom, he was the wisest of men, but he had not the wisdom of which Job speaks here. And therefore to him all was vanity and vexation of spirit, unquote. Now we might notice that gold is mentioned five times in verses 15, 16, 17, and 19. There are four different words that are used to translate gold. The first one here, there are two words to describe gold here in verse 15. It is here, gold, the zahab, which means Strong's definition, to shiver, gold, figuratively something gold colored that is yellow as oil or a clear sky. This is the gold in which precious stones are set. And then also, there in verse 16, uh, the value of precious stone, metals and stones of the earth cannot compare to the value of true wisdom. It said it cannot be valued with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx, or the sapphire. The word gold in verse 16 is kathem which Strong's defines as properly something carved out. That is ore, hence gold as pure as originally mined. So this is gold made currency by being coined. So gold and precious stones cannot compare to the price of true wisdom. Now in verse 17, it says here, Drew, uh, uh, Job's is saying here, true wisdom is more precious than crystal in settings of gold or jewels made of gold. It says the gold and the crystal cannot equal it, and the exchange of it shall not be for jewels of fine gold. Again, verse 17 here, the word is zahav, uh, shimmer, gold, gold colored that is yellow as oil or clear sky. This is the gold in which precious stones are set. Uh, the crystal was a gem, and here it is mentioned as being set into the gold. Now there's also the word paz there, the second word there in verse 17. That means pure gold, hence, or hence gold itself. That's hammered or worked gold. 
So the first word gold there in chapter 17 is the gold that is in which precious stones are set. And the second part there is the hammered or worked gold. Now in verse 18, Job says more precious things that or gives more precious things that cannot compare to the value of true wisdom. He says no mention shall be made of coral or of pearls for the price of wisdom is far above rubies. The word coral there, arama, meaning something high in value, perhaps coral, and that's Strong's definition. And pearls and rubies cannot compare to wisdom. Again, leave your marker here and let's go to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 15. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 15. It says there of wisdom, she is more precious than rubies and all the things thou canst desire are not to be compared to her. And then Proverbs chapter 8, verse 11. Proverbs 8, 11. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. In verse 19, Job says, Nothing can equal the price of true wisdom. Job 28:19. The topaz of Ethiopia shall not equal it, neither shall it be valued with pure gold. All right. The topaz of Ethiopia was a stone that had colors of yellow, green, blue, and red. And then the word gold here is that same word we looked at a while ago, kethem. Properly something carved out, hence ore, hence gold, uh, pure as originally mined, or in other words, gold being made current here again by being coined. So. Job repeats his question from verse 12 in verse 20 to give greater emphasis on it. He says, Whence then cometh wisdom? And where is the place of understanding? Well, Albert Barnes says, quote, It is designed to fix the attention on the inquiry as one which found no solution in the discoveries of science and whose solution was hidden from the most penetrating human intellect, unquote. Man has never found any way to find true wisdom. So where can it be found? We've read that a while ago in James chapter 1, verse 5, asking God. But Job also gives an answer, verse 21 of Job 28. He says, seeing it is hid from the eyes of all living and kept close from the fowls of the air. Kyle and Delich said in their commentary in Esau, and I quote, no living created being is able to answer the question. Even the birds that fly aloft that have keener and farther seeing eyes than man can give us no information concerning wisdom, unquote. And then Job says, True wisdom cannot be found in the nether world. Job 28:22. Destruction and death say, we have heard the fame thereof with our ears. Albert Barnes says, and I quote, this is a personification which is exceedingly sublime. Job had spoken of the wonderful discoveries made by science, but none of them had disclosed true wisdom. 
It had not been discovered in the shaft which the miner sank deep into the earth, in the hidden regions which he lay open today, nor by the birds that saw to the farthest distance, or that were regarded as the interpreters of the will of the gods. Apparently that was something they uh, thought happened. Anyway, continuing his quote, it was natural to ask whether it might not have been discovered in the vast profound of the nether world, the regions of death and night, unquote. Well, the answer, no, it could not be found there. Not even if one could go down and talk to the dead could he find where true wisdom is. And then Job says, here's where true wisdom is. God is the only one who knows where true wisdom is. Verse 23. God understandeth the way thereof, and he knoweth the place thereof. So true wisdom can only be taught by revelation from God, and we know today that true wisdom is found in the word of God. Look at James chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. James chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. He says, Who is a wise man endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation or by his good life his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is shown in peace of them that make peace. So right there we see from the book of James that true wisdom comes from above, comes from God. And we can see true wisdom in his word. Well, Job says in verse 24 of Job 28 that God's knowledge is unlimited. Chapter 28, verse 24. God understandeth the way thereof, and he knoweth the place thereof. God sees and knows everything. Humans can only see a little, and people do not understand as God does. And then Job illustrates wisdom, God's wisdom through the orderly workings of nature. That's verses 25 to 28. First of all, he says, God makes weight for the winds and measures the waters. Verse 25. To make weight for, let's see, make sure I didn't skip. No, I didn't. To make weight for the winds and he weigheth the waters by measure. I should have read verse 24 a while ago. It said, For he looketh to the ends of the earth and seeth under the whole heaven to make weight for the winds, and he weigheth the waters by measure. God made an atmosphere for the earth that is perfectly suited for all his, all his creation to live. God exactly proportioned the water surface of the earth for evaporation to take place and moisture to rain upon the earth. Adam Clark said, and I quote, it has been found by a pretty exact calculation that the aqueous surface of the globe is to the terrene parts as three to one, or that three-fourths of the surface of the globe is water and about one-fourth earth. 
and other experiments on evaporation on the quantity of vapors which arise from a given space in a given time show that it requires such a proportion of aqueous surface to afford, afford moisture sufficient for the other proportion of dry land. Thus God has given the waters by measure and he has given the due proportion of weight to the winds." Unquote. In verse 26, Job says God determined how rain should be generated and a way for the lightning to pass. Said he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of thunder. So God regulates rain. It doesn't happen by chance or haphazard. And God that made, made the rain knows the path of the lightning and thunder. And then in verse 27, through his wisdom, God made and executes his laws concerning rain, lightning, and thunder. Verse 27, then did he see it and declare it, and he prepared it, yea, and searched it out. Uh, in Proverbs 8, 27 to 30, we see wisdom personified. Proverbs 8, 27 to 30. It says, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea its decree or boundary that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. So right there, wisdom is personified. And then he, Job says in Job 28, 28, here is true wisdom for mankind. And then the man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Adam Clark said there that, quote, This probably refers to the revelation of his will, which God gave to Abraham, or to Adam, excuse me, after his fall. He had before sought wisdom in a forbidden way. When he and Eve saw that the tree was pleasant to the eyes and pity desired to make one wise, then they took and did eat. Thus they lost all wisdom that they had by not setting fear of the Lord before their eyes and became foolish and wicked and miserable. Here then what God describes as a proper remedy for the dire, this dire disease. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. It is thy only wisdom now to set God before thy eyes that thou mayest not again transgress, unquote. So depart from evil that is in you and the evil from the world, that's true wisdom. So mankind through great feats of engineering found the treasures of the earth but could not find true wisdom in any of these engineering accomplishments. All the treasures of this earth cannot come close to the value of true wisdom. Only through God and his revelation to mankind can we truly know proper wisdom. God proves his wisdom through his perfect creation. Therefore, if we want to have true wisdom, we need to fear God and depart from evil. Well, again, this is Don Boyd with the uh, Moody Church of Christ. We want to thank you for tuning in to be with us today, and we look forward to being with you next time. 
We hope you enjoyed this program. We encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on Pandora, Spotify, or Podbean. Thanks for listening.